those of you I haven't had the opportunity to meet, I'm Mrs. Beckett and I'm the Director of Alumni Relations. And I am thrilled to welcome three of our alumni to tonight's Careers in Education panel. Um, I am here to set some ground rules. So specifically, um, please make sure that your microphone is on mute. Um, if you have a question, please submit it through the chat box. I'll be monitoring the chat box and I will um, be sure to ask your questions to the panelists when they come up. And um, this is in real time, so as you write your questions, I'll make sure to, to share them. And I just also want to share, we have a hard stop at 7.30, so I want to respect that folks have lots of commitments outside of this evening's program. So I want to make sure that um, when we're done, we are done. Uh, but all of our panelists have um, generously offered to share their email with interested students. So if at the end of our program, um, you there was a question you really wanted to have answered or you were hoping for some additional discussion, I can make that happen. So um, I will turn it over to Patrick, who is going to moderate our panel. Yeah, so um, just a quick introduction. I'm Patrick. I'm one of the uh, student alumni board representatives for this year. And yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, I'll just get right into intros. Um, so yeah, uh, does any one of you guys want to start first? I'm happy to go. I can go. I'll go. Uh, hi guys, I'm Margo Munley. I'm from the class of 2002, which means I'm officially super old. Um, I only went to academy for my uh, soft, most of my sophomore, my junior, and my senior year, but my family still lives in Columbus to this day, and so I have deep ties. Um, I am the principal of a 6th through 12th grade school in Philadelphia named Mastery Charter Pickett Campus, um, and I've been there for 10 years. This is my 11th year there. I love everything that I do, um, and before that, my college was Boston College, so that is my brief intro. All right, uh, great. Uh, Nate, would you like to go next? I'm sure. I just want to say, Margaret, your comment about making feeling old right now. I'll just jump in. I'm Nate Gordon. I'm the class of uh, 1988, uh, which means I have actually classmates of mine whose kids have graduated, I think, Academy, definitely have graduated Academy by now. So that's a good feeling. Um, I was... I went to academy from fourth grade to 12th grade. In those days, uh, the school started in first grade. So I was not a lifer. My brother joined that same year uh, was. Uh, very different school back then. The first female students came about five or six years after I graduated. Uh, and at the time, actually, we still had people who had taught at the original campus in uh, Cherry Bottom Lane. I'm not Cherry Bottom. I'm not, I don't remember where that was, but the original campus. Um, right now, I am the assistant head of the lower school and the lower school technology coordinator at the Bullis School, which is a K-12 school in Potomac, Maryland. So outside the D.C. suburbs, the school actually very much, I think, like Academy. That's great. Um, and now, Brian, it's on to you. Hey, everybody. I'm Brian Panzano. I graduated from Academy in 2008. Um, I'm currently the associate director of university engagement at Harvard University. I actually have another title too. I'm a proctor for first year students. So I'm a residential advisor. I live on campus with my wife and our son. And um, in my role as, uh, with the, as associate director of university engagement, basically what I do is work with a subset of Harvard fellows who are interested in making positive change in the social sector. So folks who want to start organizations, that have a social mission and make the world a better place. And I'm an advisor to them as well. So advise some of our youngest students on campus and also some of our oldest students on campus. So excited to be with you all tonight. That's great. Um, well, without further ado, I'll get right into questions. Um, where did you guys go for your uh, post-academy degrees? We went over that a little bit. And do you feel that academy uh, did a good job preparing you for that uh, academic success? Um, I'll start. I went to um, Amherst College in Massachusetts and which was a wonderful choice to go to. And I felt very prepared for it, um, it particularly on the writing aspect uh, and the research aspect. That was one thing I felt I had, in, I don't like to say advantage, because that implies a competition, but um, that I was more comfortable at than many of my friends, the kind of independent uh, amount of reading and research we had to do in the projects at Academy really prepared me. And I was, college was still, a, I mean, it was a step up. 
uh, than what we had to do, but I felt pretty well prepared for it. I can go next. I went to um, Boston College um, and then later University of Pennsylvania and Chestnut Hill uh, College. And I definitely feel that Academy prepared me uh, similar to Nate. I think writing was super strong. So if you know Mrs. H uh, Hogan, shout out to her. Um, and then uh, also in math, I was a pre-med student. So I had to take a lot of math and I was the, the top like math person in pre-calc there, or sorry, um, not pre-calc, <laughs> hello, just calculus there um, and Spanish as well. And then in the science, Sciences, I felt a little bit less prepared, but that's not because of Academy's fault. It's because it was terrible teaching that was happening at BC and just like designed to be people not like it and weed people out. But in anything that was like a normal, lovely class, I was absolutely prepared in terms of rigor, uh, critical thinking and content uh, for college. I think the one thing that my peers from, um, from Academy struggled in a little bit more than I did was the social um, <clears throat> component of college. Because I moved around so much, so I, I went to public school in New Jersey, I went to international school in Brazil, and then I came to academy. I was used to like meeting new people and having to reintroduce myself and like know who I was. But a lot of my academy friends were lifers. And so this was the first time for them to like reestablish who they were. And so I know that was tough for them, but everything academic out of the park. Yeah, I don't have much to add to that. I, I went to Harvard as an undergraduate and I got my master's from the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. And I, I just totally agree with uh, both Nate and Margot that I felt very prepared um, coming to Harvard as a freshman and all of the courses that I was taking, I felt like Academy had done a good job preparing me for those. And in particular, I'd say I felt like I had an ability to communicate ideas in a way that that was maybe even more clear than some of my classmates and, and to be able to articulate my thoughts and have a good discussion. And that's something I, I definitely attribute to the small class size at Academy and the frequency of discussion that we had there. So that's something I really am appreciative of. All right, that's all great to hear. Um, this actually segues pretty good into our uh, next question. Uh, what did you all major in and how did your major impact your uh, post-college career choices? I had no plan on being an uh, elementary school teacher when I went to Amherst. And Amherst didn't have any kind of respect for it. still does not have any professional degrees. You know, there's officially no pre-med or education or business or anything like that there. Um, I was planning on becoming a college professor and high school history was going to be a temporary thing to do for a couple of years, which is pretty common in uh, New England boarding schools. Uh, people go for a couple of years and then leave. But as I was looking around, I just realized that part of it was going back to my memories of my time at Academy. And what I wanted was that connection between the students and teachers. I didn't really want to be a researcher. Uh, I wanted the teaching to be the priority in what I did. And so I began really taking a second look at teaching jobs as the primary thing to do. And one of the placement guys suggested that I look into elementary school. And I should say my major was in history. And particularly, my focus was on like 12th century medieval English uh, land transactions. So there was really no connection between that and teaching first graders how to read. Um, as much as I tried to bring it in later, they just, you know, they weren't into those reading about, you know, how different ways to transmit land between the barons and the uh, manors, uh, the monasteries. So, but it, so it was a long sort of evolution thing, but what I'd say most prepared me then, the major didn't prepare me except in the sense of learning the skills of how to research, how to focus, how to study. The actual content never really comes into my daily life, but it was that kind of flexibility that a liberal arts education can give you that prepares you, I think, to adapt to other different fields. I love it. Maybe we'll just keep this order because then it makes things less awkward. Okay, cool. Thanks. Right. Um, so yeah, I was a Hispanic studies major, math minor, pre-med, and then there's a core curriculum at BC. So basically I had no real clue what I wanted to do. And I like wanted to do a smattering of everything, which in many ways set, it, set me up perfectly for what I do now. But um, in my mind, I was going to be a pediatrician. That was always the plan. That's what my parents wanted for me. Um, 
But they're uh, similar to you, Nate, there is no pre-med major at Boston College, so I had to pick something else. And uh, I really loved Spanish from my experiences at Academy. Shout out to Senora Chavez. Um, and I loved, I was like, I'm a jack of many trades and a master of absolutely none. So I loved in Hispanic studies, you got to do like film and poetry and history um, and literature all in Spanish and, and focus on lots of different countries. So it was, that was a wonderful experience. Um, and then that, I was in a Spanish class actually when a, uh, a representative from Teach for America came in to talk to us about the program. I had never heard of it at that time, um, and, but I knew I didn't want to go straight into med school. So I was like, sure, that sounds like me. Those qualities uh, are a lot like me, like so arrogant. And I applied and got in, um, had no clue what I was getting myself into, and then absolutely fell in love with urban education. Um, so very much kismet. And now like I get to walk into any classroom uh, that happens in my building and I know all of that content because I studied a little bit of all of it in college, which is really helpful. The only thing I wish I had studied more is African-American history um, or studies because I didn't do much of that. And, and that is something that we really emphasize in our building. So I've had to learn a lot of that on my own, which is a very good thing. Um, but I wish I had more experience with that beforehand. Margo, very similar um, interests and, and journey. So I also, I was a romance languages and literature, uh, call it concentrator at Harvard, but major at Harvard. And so very similar thing. I, I really had no clue what I wanted to do. I'll do my shout out to Mr. Moody, who I don't think teaches at Academy anymore, but um, I took French with Mr. Moody and loved French and was just like, hey, I'll take French while I'm in college too. And it ended up being my favorite course and it led to more French courses and then led to Spanish courses. And so it was a great way, just like you said, Margot, to, to discover new things in lots of different ways. I also did Teach for America after um, graduating from Harvard. So yes, similar, very similar paths. Um, and then while I was doing Teach for America, I sort of made a decision that I wanted to, to take a step into education policy. And so returned to Harvard to get a master's in public policy from the Kennedy School of Government here and got connected with a program on campus, as I said, that is sort of tied into social impact, particularly around education for students. So um, I guess, how did my major inform all of that? It, this actually ties into wh where Nate started us, which is I... I had a way of thinking. I learned a way of thinking. My, my degree, other than occasionally being able to speak bad Spanish to people uh, and, and worse French, uh, is mostly just giving me the tools that I needed to be able to be flexible, adaptable, to learn new things, to teach myself new things. And I think that that is something that Academy, that, that's something that originated at Academy, sort of that idea of um, discovering new things on your own, teaching yourself new things, being curious, intellectually curious. And so um, that was that was my path, yeah. All right, um, this is completely off topic, but Margot, is that a dog I see? Why, yes it is. This is Lady Magnolia of Larchwood, AKA Maggie, but I gave her like a really bougie name just for fun. This is my rescue pup, she's the best, yeah. She keeps wow. me company. She likes to like snuggle. Every time I'm on Zoom, she like is, has to get on screen. Get out of here. She, she loves the spotlight. All right. Um, our next question is, uh, how did you all get into your current role? And uh, how did Academy help you get there? Um, mine took a long evolution to get there. Uh, I started teaching most of my elementary school time was in third grade. And towards the end of my time of third grade, I began becoming really interested in how I could use technology in the classroom. Uh, and I was sort of one of the leaders of it. And then I began to become interested in how can I help other people use that and other teachers uh, and sharing it so it wasn't just my room. And so I moved into the role of what at times was technologist and tech director and tech coordinator, a variety. Every different schools had different titles for it as I sort of moved around. Um, and then the assistant head part just sort of came apart because my schedule sort of allowed it and there was a need for a little continuity as we went through several heads in our division to have someone who had that sort of cross grades as well as cross divisional because I work with middle school a lot um, approach to be able to sort of support and help them on it. So my do job is right now half administrative and half on the teaching side. 
And in terms of how Academy helped me got there, I mean, get there, sorry, you know, directly no, but one of the things I realized as I look back was there were teachers at Academy who did the same thing for their entire teaching career. Uh, you know, 45 years of retired after that. And that's wonderful uh, for people who want to do that. Uh, one teacher I've heard so far who I remembered was Mr. Moody. And I think Mr. Moody pretty much taught high school French and coached soccer his entire time there. Uh, and that was wonderful for him. But there were many teachers also who moved around and did different things and taught different grades. And at the time, that sort of shocked me. I would hear that my brother's first grade teacher was also his fourth grade teacher. And I was like, well, how can that be? Um, or actually, Coach Kirk, who just retired uh, like a year or two ago, I believe, um, he was the other fourth grade teacher. I didn't have him, but he was in the room right next door to me. And then he moved on to high school in this for a while. And then when he was doing middle school health, when I left as well as coaching the track team. And so that idea that you could have that kind of stay in the education field, but get that freshness to move around, try different things, um, let your own teaching career grow, because it can be hard to do the same thing for a long time. And it's sort of easy for teachers to fall into a rut. And seeing that kind of model at Academy, that Academy gave the support to teachers to do that, uh, was, I think, really beneficial to me. Love it. Um... Yeah, I think Academy absolutely influenced uh, me, even though, like I said, I was only there for a short time. Uh, I think in the, the most significant ways, one is around public speaking. Um, and actually, Coach Kirk uh, did junior speeches with me. Oh. And I remember that class being uh, like incredibly helpful to my life. As a teacher, all we do is <laughs> public speaking. And then uh, as an administrator and now as a principal, I have to constantly be able to communicate, give speeches in front of large groups of people on the drop of a dime. So that helped me so much uh, when some of my peers really struggle with stage fright and public speaking. I was also in theater um, a bit at the end of my high school career. So all those things really helped me. I can project my voice and I never need a mic. Um, and I got all of that at Academy. I think also just a service orientation, right? Like the community service that I engaged in, that it just was like part of our DNA at Academy and just like who we are influenced me going to Boston College, uh, similar Jesuit, like um, morals there about go set the world aflame and men and women for others. Uh, so that certainly propelled me into TFA and then staying, you know, working in a uh, very underserved urban education field um, and a, like a turnaround school in Philadelphia, but still being a public school, um, which is really rare. So I think like that influences me every single day and just immersing myself into the community and trying to uh, do like honor them and be the best that I can be and for them. Although it is not community service, I think sometimes people go into this work as like, I'm going to give it uh, like a little bit of time just to like help out um, like I would in my high school career. Like, no, 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 I am serving that community and and I'm learning so much from them. Um, and then, and so like, anyway, so how did I get this? Yeah, I was, I was like, I told you guys, I did teach for America, like on a whim, absolutely fell in love with it. So something that is consistent in my life is I did things that I really enjoyed. And then that passion, I think became evident to others and made me want to keep working hard and doing it. So I fell in love with teaching. I realized the school that I was placed in, in TFA, I stayed there for four years. I learned as much of the good stuff to do as an administrator, and I also learned what not to do. Um, and I wanted to be, um, instead of a single charter school that kind of leached students from the public schools, I wanted to be in a school system that was a public school serving the same students that it always would if it were part of the school district. Um, so that brought me over to mastery. And, um, and then I very quickly became an assistant principal of instruction um, and then a principal. So that is my journey and certainly Academy influenced me all along the way. Just yes and yes and yes to Nate and Margo completely. So much, so much agreement with everything that's being said. I, I, the only thing I would say beyond that is Academy influenced my career path and especially as it relates to getting involved in education because I, I learned very quickly how much of an impact teachers had had on my life, seeing and hearing from other students, both when I was in college and then when I became an educator and, and, and experiencing that firsthand, that the impact a teacher can have on a student's life is just remarkable. And um, that was something that was really important to me and something that I really valued about the academy experience is that the teachers were passionate about what they did they were they cared a lot about the students 
And I knew how much of an impact it had on me. And so I wanted to try to carry that forward in some way to the next generation of students. And so like Margot, went into Teach for America and became extremely passionate about education and also recognized probably for the first real time how much advantage and privilege I had had in my life and how much of my experience, frankly, had been based on luck and just sort of being born into a family and to a set of opportunities where I was afforded a lot of really, really great experiences. And so knowing that that was true, I wanted to make sure that that opportunity expanded to other kids, regardless of what their family background was like or what zip code they were born into. And so um, took a slightly different route than, than what Margo and Nate did and, and went more into the policy direction. So thinking about how to influence some of the higher level policies that affect the schools that they work in. And then, um, but continued to really wanted to be engaged one-on-one -on -one with students. So when I had the opportunity to come back to Harvard and get a master's degree, it just sort of fit together perfectly that I could continue to stay involved in education policy, but also work with the first year students who are transitioning to college. And Harvard is becoming an increasingly more diverse place with students from diverse backgrounds. So it's really fun to be able to support people from all around the world and all around the country from all different experiences. Great, all of that was great. Um, what is something that uh, would surprise people about the work that you do? Um, I think the first one is that the amount of background knowledge that has to go into teaching, even the simplest concepts. I mean, I came into teaching in my first you know, years right after college and thinking, you know, the content. And that's what's most important, content expertise. That's why I was going to be a high school history teacher. Um, and now that, you know, I, when I started teaching elementary school, everyone's like, oh, you got to be patient. That's it. I mean, that's all they sort of thought. You have to be patient with kids. But how hard is it? You're teaching them, you know, the cat sat on the rat. Two plus two is four. Um, and you can teach that not well just by knowing that. But to really understand and truly educate people, the amount of skill that has to go into the knowledge of how to teach information and skills. And that for the youngest kids, in some ways, it is the most difficult. Um, I find for the youngest kids, having taught, you know, from kindergarten to seventh, you do more planning ahead of time uh, because there's so many pieces that go into them, teaching them and building up those skills to get there. As it gets older, I found I sp the kids, I spend more time afterwards on the assessment, but there's so much that goes into getting ready. And there's a technical knowledge to teaching elementary school reading that I'll be honest, I did not get in grad school. I was part of a group of education schools where the philosophy was just read to them and they'll pick it up. And we've sort of realized in many cases that just doesn't work. Uh, some kids do, but many don't. And there's a whole science behind it that I'm still actually catching up and learning as well now. And certainly even for teaching elementary school math, again, to really truly teach kids to understand the concepts of math is a lot more that goes into it than just the knowledge of how to multiply numbers. Uh, I couldn't agree more. Teaching is crazy hard, like so, so hard. And for those of you guys who've already learned how to drive, you know, when you like watch someone else drive for your entire life and you're like, oh, it looks pretty easy. And then you get behind a car and you're like, oh my God, I can, I can only look right here. And you're like, parents are yelling at you to look in this mirror and this mirror. And you're like, I can't. So teaching is like that. You've seen it your whole life, your whole life. And your teachers make it look so simple, but it is so incredibly hard. Uh, and if any of you do go into teaching, know that you will be the worst person in your building your first year. You will be the weakest link on your team. And for so many people that I work with an interview, that's the first time in their life that they've really been bad at something because so many of the people that I work with are brilliant and very successful. It is an art form. It, you'll never master it. It's so incredibly, I mean, I just, it, I'm in awe of it every single day of my life. So agreed, Nate, like teaching is crazy complicated and hard and your teachers make it look easy. And then I would say funding is so messed up and crazy inequitable, not even just like unequal, like, you know, like inequitable, it's not even equal, right? So in Philly, like I get $7,000 per student, general education student. And in the neighboring suburb, they get $20,000 to $54,000 
for the same general education student. And in Philadelphia, I've got, we've got old buildings that are worn down. We have way more trauma impacting our community and low socioeconomic status, I mean, everything. So I, uh, it would blow your mind what uh, we get at Academy kind of versus everywhere else as uh, Brian was saying, and through no fault of that community whatsoever, just because of like luck of where you're born into or what you know your family is able to afford or negotiate for you or who they know that lives in that zip code it is crazy inequitable yeah so i, I think i'll i'll go a slightly different direction and just say um it, one of the things that surprises people when i tell them that i work at harvard is that i some of the students that i work with are actually in their 60s and 70s so there are these fellows who come back to campus for an educational experience, many of whom are former CEOs, heads of law firms, heads of state, who are coming back to continue to learn. And so I think the thing that I want to share with you all is that education never ends and that there's always a desire, even as people get older, to continue to learn. And the ways in which you can engage in education are endless. It's not just as a teacher, it's not just as a principal, there are private ways that you can go where you can be working for a for-profit company, you know, developing textbooks. There are uh, public ways that you can go working in a public school like Margot is. And then there are so many iterations and versions of this that if you're interested in working with people and then to circle back to Nate's point, one of the amazing things about being an educator is that to truly educate someone, you need to understand that topic so well because you need to basically be able to break it down to its fundamental component and explain it to someone else so that they can do it. And so it's a process, not just where you're helping other people continue to learn, but also where you yourself are learning throughout your life. And, and again, to borrow some of what Nate was saying, when you look at Academy and some of these teachers who are around for decades, I think some of it is because in education, it keeps you young, not just because you're around young people, but because you're constantly learning. You're constantly revisiting. You're constantly finding new ways to design a lesson to improve the administration of your school, to help people change the world. And that's a really exciting and energy giving field. Wow. Uh, that was all great stuff. Um, so a lot of you guys touched on it at least a little bit um, in, uh, in what you said, but um, what are the biggest challenges uh, that you are either facing or have faced uh, in like your current work environment or role? And what are some of the struggles you anticipate in like the next year, five years, or even down the line, like 25 years? Um, I'd say one of the struggles I have when I think about as I move into the, to my new roles, when I was a third grade teacher, I had to work with my team. Uh, I had my own classroom. I could really do a lot of my own stuff. Um, now that I'm a coordinator where I have to help all the teachers integrate skills, and now as a assistant head where I have an administrative role over them, it's a very different role being a supervisor to them, to colleagues of mine. Um, you know, what do I do with teachers who really just don't want to do technology or just say, look, I just want to teach it this way because I've always done it. And there's not a lot of that, but in some, you know, one of the most exciting open-minded teachers I have is open-minded about everything except technology which partly because he doesn't understand it himself. He's a few years older than me. Uh, but everything else he does is incredible, thoughtful, thinkful, progressive understanding, you know, how kids truly learn. So that's a personal challenge for me. You know, it's why I frankly would never want to go beyond being the assistant head of a school. I look at these heads and the job they have and having to be that final decision. I'm glad I'm the one supporting them, if not making it. Um, in terms of the future, I mean, I sort of think there's, the big one big one is as a teaching at an independent school like Bullis or a school like Academy, or what are the future for schools like that uh, economically? You know, many of the schools are having an issue of how do you price yourselves in? You know, it was, are, the costs are going up at schools and it's living in an area like I do where the public schools are very good, you know, it becomes a real issue. What makes families decide to choose a school like us uh, when they can get a very, very good education in the county around them? Uh, so that's one of the other the big challenges we have coming up. Um, and another thing that I'm very excited about, though, um, is on the technology side where, you know, when I started teaching on the tech side, there was no real way to do coding or programming with young kids. 
but it's come down because there are tools available to kids who can start programming skills even if they can't read yet. And that's fine because there's so many ways for them to use that as an experiment. It's such a trial and error building engineering thing. I try something, I press a button, I see what happens. It hopped the wrong way. You know, Mr. Gordon, what happened? Well, let's look and see what you did. You know, to just realize it doesn't, it's not just that it didn't work. We got to see what happened. And that's such an exciting part that I really want to see. I look forward to growing and becoming an important part of education because there's so much potential with technology for students to experiment and try again. Love that. Uh, yeah, I think the, in like challenge in a good light, I think one of the challenges that I face every day in being principal is that I'm just balanced. I'm like spinning so many plates at the same time. And I go from like a totally disparate meeting to totally disparate meeting. Um, and I like that. I like, I love challenging my brain in that way and thinking through like, what is our budget? And then like going to a classroom to evaluate and then meeting with this person about the future and interviewing that. I, I love that. That is a great challenge that I face. Um, what I don't love as much is being responsible for the physical and emotional well-being of everyone in the building every day and all like and especially right now um, because uh, COVID-19 is impacting my student population um, in really very significant ways both in um, just like actually contracting the disease and then not having great health care um, to you know to get through it so we've lost a number of grandparents uh, a lot of my students don't live with their um, direct parents. They live with grandparents or aunts and uncles or in larger family communities. So when one person gets COVID, it really impacts a larger amount than if it was just like one nuclear family. Um, so COVID is in, like, impacting, you know, inner cities at higher rates. And then my students um, are falling behind academically compared to their more affluent peers uh, because uh, of I, a lot of my students didn't have internet. So we are getting internet to all of our students and paying for it to make sure they have it. They didn't have laptops or devices. Uh, we did not have a system that was set up to just transition very quickly to a fully remote environment. Um, so, and then ultimately making decisions like, do we come back? Do we not? And having to weigh academics and their future, but also the very real safety, like that keeps me up at night. And that um, is hard for me uh, as a human being. And so like to just to be that professional, I can't just like leave it at work at, you know, whatever hour. I would say five o'clock, but like I work more than that every day. So whatever time I'm done that day, I can't just leave that at work. And it definitely impacts me as a person. So I've had to work a lot on um, self care <laughs> and how to, to be Margot and not just like principal monolly all the time. Um, but something I look forward to, I do look forward to the ways in which um, COVID-19 will help change how we, um, how we educate. I, um, definitely technology is like something that we uh, are having to put in the forefront of every decision we make right now and training that we do. And I think that's going to uh, allow for more choices and opportunities for my students, um, like more trade school opportunities, AP courses, dual enrollment. I mean, everything across the spectrum that we as as even though it's like we're like kind of a medium-sized school couldn't really provide before so I really look forward to where this takes us even though living in it right now is not my favorite era in my uh, professional life as usual I'm gonna echo these two a lot with what I say in that um, I'll speak specifically to higher education and some of the changes that and challenges that we're facing and I think definitely technology is bringing a lot of new considerations onto our plate. And I think for circling back to kind of what Nate said, the cost of education is rising everywhere, but especially at universities and colleges. And I think students and families are less convinced in the return on that investment. And technology, I think, is really going to shake things up in the, in the coming years about what am I able to do at a lower cost that is still empowers me to get a career or a job where I'm able to support my family, but doesn't require me to take on the debt that um, many students have to in order to get a college degree. And so um, it's been a challenge for us in the immediate term, just dealing with COVID-19 and the fact that many students aren't able to come onto campus and how do you educate students who are remote and in different time zones and have a different set of circumstances surrounding them. 
and what elements of an education are impossible to replicate in a virtual environment? And, and the answer is many elements. <laughs> but uh, that, that's something that I'm thinking about constantly. Um, but I'm thinking also too that this is representative of a bigger shift in education overall, in particular about how we think about higher education. And then maybe not for the Harvard universities of the world, but certainly for community colleges, for vocational schools, are students able to get those degrees and get those credentials without needing to cripple themselves with debt, basically? That's, that's something that I think will set a new path in the way that education is going moving forward. Sounds good. Um, what constitutes uh, success for all of you? And uh, well, this is a two-part question. Uh, what do you think is most exciting about your work? And what do you love most about what you do? Wait, real quick, Patrick, you're my favorite. Like every time after each question round, you just put a smile on all of our faces. I don't I know if you've seen it, but I'm watching us. You rock. <laughs> Thank you. Great. Thank you. Um, I mean, in the short term, I think I get success when I have a schedule that works and the teachers don't go complaining about it because uh, that's one of my jobs. But no, um, when I'm working with the kids and they discover something, and particularly something they thought would be hard. And it's not, and one where I didn't step in too much to go do this, do this, do this, but still I go, what do you think is going to happen? What is the outcome you want here? What are some ways to do it? And they come up with that um, independently, even if it's just a first grader, you know, making their cartoon character jump over a box um, or, you know, the fifth graders designing a roller coaster that actually works uh, for a project we did. You know, there's so many ways, but when they discover that and explore it and have gotten that, with as minimal help for me and just guidance and sort of maybe some nudging on there and seeing that excitement on their face when they do that. For me, that's really what a truly successful lesson is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Eureka moment. Uh, for me, whether it's the student or the staff member, having that breakthrough is amazing. Like, there's no feeling like it. And anytime I'm kind of down on a day, I realize it's because I haven't had enough of that. And so I could go into a particular classroom just to see it and experience it. Um, I will also say success looks like nothing that I'm actually really formally evaluated on. I don't like student or state testing is a huge, huge pressure point for, um, for inner city schools. And it really means absolutely nothing to my students eventual success. Yet it is almost all, everything that I get from my superiors. So I just want to put that out there. Like that is the ways in which I'm evaluated is not how I feel successful. I feel successful when I see those moments when my students come back uh, and they were able to pursue their dreams and choose the right second post-secondary path for them and that we set them up for success. So when we have career days and our students come back and speak, just like I am doing now, it's so bizarre to be in this role. And when the moderator asked them, did Pickett set you up for success? And when they say yes, like there, I feel incredible. Um, and I just want my students and staff to really love school. Like I really want them to love and feel at home in the building because that is what I felt at Academy. I felt seen and valued and heard um, and part of a, like an important space. And, and I want all of my students to find their own niche and staff as well and just like feel like they are part of the Pickett family. And when that happens, I feel successful. Yes and yes, I'm, you know, here I go, broken record. Can you change the order? Yeah. Um, you guys can okay, change so, the order if you want. <laughs> no, it's good. I like, I like following these two. They're great. Um, I, I'd say yes, empowering students, empowering people to achieve something that they've been working on, to make a connection that they haven't been able to make before is endlessly rewarding. And it's one of the coolest parts about working in education is that you get to essentially live vicariously through all of the people that you work through. And so, uh, you know, one of the challenges that I think Nate and Margot and I all felt is we didn't really know exactly what it was we wanted to do. And one of the really cool things about education is that you get to do a little bit of all of it through your students by encouraging them to do it or, or through the people that you work with. And it's so cool because I, you know, I advise students who are engineers, I advise students who are into math, who are into literature, and it's so neat to be able to see the things that excite them and that they get passionate about and to connect them and to further those dreams and those perspectives. It is so rewarding. 
um, yeah, teaching is the best. It's, and, and just to circle back on, on something that Margo said earlier too, it, you learn so much more from the people that you're working with than you ever could impart to them. And, and that, that's really kind of like the trick of all of this is that, um, you know, we're the teachers or the advisors or the principals or whatever, but, but really we're the ones who are deriving maybe even more benefit from any of the people that we work with. Now, um, I know a lot of you touched on this earlier, but uh, uh, feel free to add on. Has uh, COVID changed your work and the way that uh, you guys work? And if so, uh, what has changed? And if no, or I guess it's all changed, but uh, what has uh, managed to stay the most normal, I guess? And I'm happy to let one of the others, if you want to. Go for it, So... We were fairly, we, I think, were relatively well prepared. I mean, in mid, mid to late February, the director of technology came to me and said, look, we've got to start planning. And so we had sort of an action plan ready uh, before we went off online. And then, of course, we dumped it all a week later uh, and had to do everything differently. But at least we had to start on that. Um, it's been a real challenge for the young kids. We're back on campus now. Uh, the elementary school, the K-5, to we are on four and a half days a week now instead of five. We do have a half day Wednesday. But the students, they stay in the same classroom all day. Their desks are separated. And what it really means is they're not able, to, we can't share. Um, you know, they cannot share manipulatives. They cannot share books. And especially with our youngest kids, our kindergartners, many of whom miss some of their preschool and our first graders who miss chunks of the kindergarten, so much of the beginning is learning how to share. And they don't know how now because they're not having to. And, you know, we require kids to go into the same things and move and pass around and work. And it's very hard to do that with these young guys. And they're really losing a lot. And I'm very worried about the long-term, you know, um, ramifications of this for our youngest kids. What's it going to be like for them, you know, catching up on this? I mean, our first grade teacher has talked about, you know, this kin his kindergarten, his first graders are still kindergartners in many ways and so forth. And I think it's less for each grade as you go up. So it has been a real challenge for us on that end. We're very happy that we are on campus, though. Um, and again, especially, I mean, how would I, I don't know how teachers, I'm so full of admiration for teachers who are starting a kindergarten class online. Because, I mean, what's kindergarten about at the beginning? It's about learning how to be part of a community and how to share. And they're not doing that. Or they are. I mean, they're coming up with ways to do it. So that's been a real challenge for us. Um, What's been able to stay the same is, you know, we still have the same objectives. Uh, we just perhaps are a little less ambitious on some of them. But, you know, they still need to learn how to read, to write, to do math, uh, how to think, how to develop, how to solve activities together. So it's just sometimes coming up with new ways to go about that. So. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think what's the same high quality instruction in my building is still high quality instruction, um, whether it happens in a Zoom classroom and on Nearpod or in person, like we are um, still like focused on highly engaging students, having them bring their prior knowledge and constructing uh, new realizations. If it's in a breakout room instead of in a group of four in person, like that's okay. So just reconceptualizing everything that we did before. Um, but it really is everything that we did before. Truly, like I've never worked harder in my life. And one thing that I love about my job is that every day is new and constantly learning new things and problem solving. But this is the most amount of new, like every, like literally I couldn't take anything I did before, like any system I had, any way that I scheduled classes, any way that we provided, I mean, everything had to be, um, turned around and, and and in a way that, you know, running a school I've never run before. I've never run anything like this. I've never taught a fully, fully virtual class. So to train teachers on how to do it, um, you know, when I have not done it myself, that those are real challenges. And we have not been in the building um, in a large sense since uh, March 12th. So because like, you know, Friday the 13th will always be in my brain. That was the first day we weren't there. And it feels like a ghost town. You walk through, you still see all the signs from that time. And, and so, yeah, that's really hard. I think the other thing that's really hard for me is um, building relationships. I know every single one of my students' names. I can tell how they're feeling when they walk into the building. And I know all of my staff and like know a lot about them. And I can 
quickly pick up on um, that in person and it's hard to do that virtually. I just don't, I can't like walk down the hallway and just get a sense and a pulse of how everyone's feeling and what we need to do. Um, so building relationships um, and yeah, and responding to the needs of my students and staff is very different uh, in this time. So very new. Yeah, it's, COVID has been a total seismic shift for us. All of our programming shifted to Zoom basically overnight. All the students left campus basically overnight. And this fall, when students returned to campus at Harvard, it's just the freshmen, just the first year students on campus. Um, and the protocols for those students are really unusual. There's masks everywhere they go. There's constant testing. Um, there's all sorts of rules around where they can and cannot be. And it's a very um, unusual environment here. And I think in particular, the greatest challenge has been how to build community when many of these students I have never physically met in person. I'm, uh, they're either at their home, wherever that might be, or they're on campus in a location where they're pretty far from me. And so I don't actually physically interact with them at all, which is very different than what I'm used to. And to Margot's point, there's a certain awareness that you have about people being physically present with them and having those in-person interactions that just isn't possible over Zoom. But the thing that's been really cool and, and has maybe been a silver lining to this too, is that we have been able to bring in and connect people uh, who might not otherwise be able to across geography and across time and space, frankly. It's just, uh, you know, someone who might be limited by their schedule or their travel plans to come speak to students is now no longer limited because all they need to do is open up their computer in much the way that all I needed to do is open up my computer to be with you all tonight. It would not have been physically possible for me to come back to Columbus and chat with you, but here I am. And so that's a really cool part of this and maybe one of the silver linings that I think will hopefully persist even after COVID is long gone. Just as a follow-up, one guy says, I realized over the last couple of days, I don't know what some of my new students look like and because they wear masks and I know their eyes and occasionally I'll see that they'll take their mask off, you know, lunch or taking a photo of what I let them do. And I realized that's not, I didn't know they looked like that. And I'm now what, seven weeks into the school year. So that's a weird feeling, you know. Nate, just to add to that, one thing that, that was really strange for me because I'm dealing with college students is I don't know how tall people are. And so I... It, when I see them sometimes across campus, I think, well, you're six and a half feet tall. I never would have guessed that based on your square. You definitely looked like 5'8 or 5'10 just from the square, you know? <laughs> I should say, I know what the kindergartens and first graders look like because the masks, no matter what they do, they just fall off. You see them just slowly sliding down in the middle of, you know, time. So, Yeah, Brian, to add to your point, one thing we definitely uh, found as a silver lining with everything going on is that for the career fair we could get all this input not just from um alumni in columbus but from all over like america and even the world um yeah uh for my the final uh scripted question i guess uh is what would be uh, a piece of advice that you would give uh, a younger version of yourself When I started teaching my first year to teaching third grade, I was in, on campus every weekend uh, for like five, six hours planning for the week ahead. Uh, so much time, in fact, planning that I was hardly having time to catch up on like grading and assessing. Um, and not everything has to be amazingly creative, innovative on day one, you know, because it's not a survivable pace. Uh, sometimes it's okay, you know, pull out a worksheet. Uh, sometimes a lesson's not going to work. You, and it may be the one you've planned the most on, you had the most, and if for some reason it just didn't fly. And just not to be discouraged by that. You know, look back and see why it didn't and adapt for the future, but just having to be patient. You know, you really want teaching to be a long-term career. And it's true of any job that someone goes into. And it's easy to get discouraged early on. Uh, especially if you're going, I think, with the most idealistic ex hopes and expectations. And it's okay. You're going to learn. You're going to make mistakes. And you just roll with them and grow from them. And isn't that the mindset we want our students to have? And yet we don't, like, have that grace and, like, growth mindset for ourselves. Like, we, I totally agree. 
yeah, I mean, for a younger version of me, I would say have an open mind and don't just like pick the career that you've heard of or that you think you want to do. Like I think Brian talked about earlier, just the scope of things in education alone. And, and none of us knew what we wanted to do when we were your age. So I'd say like, go out there, experiment, figure out what you like um, and don't just do what you think you're supposed to do. Then I would say like work your butt off, um, but like to, to Nate's point, like on the smart stuff, um, and but then set aside time for you because you can't be the best version of yourself for students, and students are the best part of any education job. Um, if you are not like good yourself, you know, so you might like work your butt off on that lesson, but if you're not centered, then it's not going to matter. Uh, and then lastly, I would say, uh, and this is regardless of wherever you end up is, you know, is don't expect other people to pour into you. Uh, find opportunities for growth yourself, find opportunities for feedback yourself and act like the role that you want to be and not the role that you're currently in. If it's not that role, right? So leave nothing to the imagination. I never wanted uh, the person interviewing me to have to imagine me as an assistant principal or to imagine me as a principal. I just acted like that role in a very humble way um, as what I was currently, whatever I was currently doing. So no imagination required. I was already that. So they, uh, you know, I got the, the thing that I ultimately wanted to do. And now I'm cool being here. Um, the advice I would give is even a bad job is good information. And what I mean by that is you're never going to have perfect understanding of if this job is the right one for you at this moment in time, but even a job where you hate it, you learn what you hate. And in some ways that's almost more helpful than a job where you like most of the elements of it. And you're not really quite able to understand what about it doesn't quite sit perfectly with you. So in some ways that should be freeing because even a job that's bad is still helping you. And so um, don't be so, not everything has to fit perfectly onto a track that you can see clearly when you're 18 because that doesn't exist. <laughs> so take those steps forward, learn, and then pivot accordingly and take another step in whatever direction seems like the right one at that moment in time. And I think you'll be pleased with where you end up. It's a true scientific experiment, right? Like that's what you guys do in science class all the time and that's life. All right. Well, that gets, um, we're all done with all of our uh, quote unquote scripted questions. Uh, Ms. Beckett, do you have any questions from the audience or anyone actually feel free to ask a question? I did not get any questions through the chat box, but if anyone does have a question, yeah, feel free to, to unmute yourself and ask. This is mainly for Nate and uh, Margo, but um, I did a bunch of work with, um, some three and four year olds over the summer. Um, and it was really fun, but it was really hard to like keep them spread out and everything. Have you guys had to like, be like, just arms length, try to do whatever you can, or is it like, um, try to visualize, try to get them to visualize it actually more for Nate. For, yeah. You guys are on campus. Yeah. It, it's hard. Um, you know, we have cues in the classroom. I mean, in many cases, you know, we've had to do desks isolated, which again, is not something we really want to do in elementary school. Um, you know, dots on there, you know, one teacher taped the carpet in her room and facilities said, we can't do that because it's the vacuum cleaners are going to pull those up every day. Uh, and it's going to tear it up, tear up their machines. But, you know, it's hard. Um, I think, you know, we teach them cues, we teach them, you know, zombie walk, uh, and, you know, Frankenstein walk like this, you know, obviously they're not going to understand six feet, um, when they're with the youngest kids. So it's just reminding them they have to keep space from each other and understanding, look, they are going to get in each other's space. You know, one of the fortunate things such as it is, is, you know, right now, you know, all the studies indicate that the vector among young kids is a low transmission. You know, there was a lot of fear going back into school, and I had some of this too, that this was gonna be a hotbed. Uh, they were gonna be just, you know, clusters and spawning grounds. And so far, we fortunately have proved ourselves wrong. Um, so, and if anything, the kids are a little cleaner than they have been because we are enforcing the hand washing rules. So hopefully this will be a lighter year for, you know, the flu and cold. You know, it's already started a bit this week, but we're sort of hoping that, you know, 
there'll be some improvement there. It's just, they don't understand it. It's nature to be in the space. You just have to be patient with it. And it's remind we have to move over here. Now you have to stay on your spot or stay in your base or this or that or the other. So with the understanding that they're going to do it. Uh, and that's why we enforce then the other things that you can work on with them, which is the washing the hands and as much as you can wearing the masks and things like that and trying to be outside as much as we can too. So, so I received a question. So how much time do each of you spend on your job outside of what would be like traditional work hours and how much free time do you have? And this might be our last question for the evening, trying to really stick to that 7.30 deadline. I'll be honest, when I was a third grade teacher, I would spend another two to three hours each day, uh, I felt like, on my job. It's a little less, actually, now that I've moved into tech and admin. It's sort of easier for me to plan. It's a lot more my job is reacting to situations. I'm on email a lot more, though, uh, with teachers often, with the, with the head, you know, so it's sort of that rolling around, but I am able to get the time for it. Fortunately, I'm able to go to the gym almost every day afterwards and some days coach there. Um, and that's been a big part for me. My sanity is, you know, keeping my regular exercise in every day. Uh, yeah, I don't know what those regular work hours are. First of all, I'm a workaholic. Like it just, that's just in my DNA. Um, so I'm bad at setting boundaries. What I don't do, like, so actually it was really hard for me with the pandemic because I never brought my laptop home before. I would always leave it at work, um, which was a really good boundary for me. So I might stay there until like be there, start, get there at 630 in the morning, stay until seven, seven, like whatever at night. But then I would leave my laptop, come home and the rest of the night was for me. And I never did work on the weekends. Um, I would always say like, don't sell your Sundays. Those Sunday scaries are the worst. So like I would work late on a Friday potentially, but I wouldn't do any work over the weekend. Weekend rule is still true. Uh, it really fluctuates though. Like the weeks uh, right before, we decided to go fully virtual uh, two weeks before teachers were back in the building and three weeks before students started. And I was working until, I mean, weekends until two in the morning. I mean, I've never worked harder in my life. So it really fluctuates. Um, but yeah, I would say that on the average, I work 11, 12, maybe more hour days, five days a week. And then I don't do work on weekends. Definitely when I was, uh, you know, working as a middle school teacher, I can relate a lot to what Margot and Nate are saying. One of the benefits about continuing upward is that your time becomes a little bit more structured around when the day begins and ends. So I, I do work basically a normal nine to five during the week now with some additional programming that varies depending on the time of the year. So when new students are coming to campus, I have more after hours things that I need to do and at the start of each semester. But outside of those two kind of big waves at the start of both semesters, my time really is mostly confined to the nine to five. And that's because I'm very uh, deliberate about that. And, and I don't necessarily feel the same obligation that I did when I was working with 12 year old students to be available. I can say to an 18 year old or a 20 year old or a 60 year old, I'll deal with this at nine o'clock in the morning. It is not an emergency. And so um, as the students and the people that you're working with get older, their understanding of your personal time broadens a bit. Also like things like school dances. So this is back to like the school, all of your, I don't, you might not be thinking of your teachers as working when they come to football games or do different things or run ECs, but like, they're not just, they might enjoy that, but they're not just doing it. Like they would not normally spend their Friday night doing that. So all of those things are still part of my job, right? Like going to those events. You can't be the principal that doesn't go to a school dance or a fundraiser or this or that. Um, so just, you know, put the, I mean, it's not all the time, but when you see your teachers at prom, if you get to have it or whatever uh, event, just realize like this is them at a work event and they love you. And that is why they're there. All right. Well, I think that uh, wraps everything up. That's not a profound way to end, though. Brian, maybe say something else. <laughs> I, I will say one last thing, which is just that, you know, thinking about education, and, and I'm, I'm so thrilled to see that, that there are students on this call, because I was sort of curious about who wants to come to the career fair about education. <laughs> but 
It is so rewarding. And I have absolutely zero regrets about pursuing this pathway and um, consider it at the very least is what I'll say, because it is really, really, really a rich and rewarding way to spend your life. Yeah, I mean, I'm coming up now on gosh, year 28 of being a teacher, which means in all likelihood, I'm more than halfway through it. And, you know, there are times I'm like, oh, wish I had that job. I wish I had this job. I didn't have to do that. But, you know, I have really no real regrets about it. It's just been a blast of energy and enthusiasm. And it's just a constant way for me to keep growing and to stay young uh, by not just being with it, but always learning. And, you know, education's a field that changes. Philosophy is so different than it was when I got into this. And then when I went into a cat, when I was during my school days. So there's so much to grow as a teacher in so many ways to, as, as all three of us have done, find our own paths within it and explore and create our own little niches of what it is that we like to do best. Well, thank you so much to our alumni panelists for joining us this evening. Um, thank you for your insights and for all of the great advice that you shared with our students. Um, we are so grateful to you and um, for everything that you've given us this evening. So, and if you're a student who has further questions or would like to follow up with any of the panelists, um, please connect with me or Ms. Conti and we'd be happy to connect you with our alumni speakers. So at 7.32, I broke my promise. We went over by a couple of minutes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but but thank you thank you everyone for your time this evening